those of you who are visiting with us three weeks ago, we started a new series of messages that focus on going through the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books often called as the Pentateuch because they're, they're five in total, also called as the Law of Moses. They're foundational books of the Bible, and it's vital that we get a good grasp of the truths these books convey. So uh, we're going to be surveying these books for the next uh, possibly year or so. Jesus himself on more than one occasion mentioned how these five books pointed to him. And that's why the series was started really. This way we will know Jesus more and love him more and as a result uh, obey him uh, because of our love for him keeps growing. Now we've already gone through two messages in the first book, the book of Genesis. Uh, in the first message uh, that was titled The God Who Creates, we looked at chapters 1 and 2 uh, as uh, we read about how everything came to be. Uh, the word Genesis itself means beginnings, how the universe began uh, to function, how did he create it, and so forth. Last week in the second message, which goes from chapters 3 through 5, uh, we looked at um, uh, how sin and death entered into this world, the beginning of sin and uh, uh, death, but also we saw uh, how God's grace entered into this universe in saving sinners from his judgment. Since there was much to cover, I just focused on chapter 3, and I mentioned we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5 uh, today. The, it's a two-part series titled, The God Who Judges and Saves. I will do a do quick recap of chapter 3, and then address the details given in chapters 4 and 5. But before we do that, uh, let's pray, ask the Lord to open our eyes and our hearts to receive the truths he has in store for us. So please uh, join me in prayer. Father, we need your spirit to open our eyes, not just for uh, uh, intellectual understanding, but for heart transformation, uh, so that um, as we see Jesus, we would be moved to know him more, uh, moved to love him more, and uh, as that love keeps increasing, that would also be translated into a heartfelt, joyful obedience to all that uh, he has commanded us to do. We love you, Jesus. Uh, help us to increase in our love as we uh, go through these uh, passages you have in front of us. For your name and for your fame, we pray. Amen. So if you haven't done, done it already, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Here, here's where we read how sin first entered into a perfect world. Remember, Genesis 2 ends with a universe unaffected by sin. Adam and Eve, naked, feeling no shame. Everything was great. Everything was perfect. But by the time Genesis 3 ends, that perfect universe was no longer perfect. It was affected so bad that it would take the Son of God to come into this world to give life in order to not only fix what's been broken, but also to usher a new universe, one that will be far, far better than Genesis 1 and 2. We saw last week how Satan, the devil who was once a holy angel, in his pride wanting to be like God, lost his position in heaven 
and was thrown out. While Genesis 3 itself did not mention that, we looked at a couple of other passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 15, and Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 11 through 17 that describe uh, Satan's fall. And Satan, as he fell because of his pride, didn't waste any time. He right away comes into this universe to corrupt humanity. He comes with this one deadly question. Genesis 1 and 2, no questions so far. In a perfect world of obedience, there are no questions. He comes with this deadly question. Did God really say? Did God really say? The temptation that he was throwing to Adam and Eve was this. Instead of implicitly obeying God's word, now you need to judge God's word. So far, God's word was not subject to human judgment. Now, Satan brings the question. No, no, no. God's word must be subjected to human judgment. Sadly, both Adam and Eve fell victims to such kind of sinful thinking, lost their innocence through one act of disobedience, eating fruit from the forbidden tree. That's verses 1 through 7. And then in verses 14 through 98, verses 8 through 13, Adam and Eve, when God confronts them, instead of taking full responsibility for their actions, give excuses by blaming others. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, now turns into, why this woman? And Eve blaming the serpent. And all the three guilty parties in the garden are being judged, verses 14 through 19. In verses 14 through 16, we saw God judging Satan, who had come in the form of a serpent, as to how one day the seed, the seed of the woman, I prefer the translation seed rather than offspring, as I mentioned last week, because that word seed is a heavy word. It has so much connotations to it. So how the seed of the woman would come and crush Satan's head. That's the first prophecy in all of the Bible. Pointing to Jesus who would die on the cross and by his subsequent resurrection would defeat Satan even though Jesus himself would be struck by Satan through the pains of the cross. That is the idea behind you would strike his heel. And I mentioned how verse 15 is often called as the first gospel. Proto-Evangelion. The first good news, if you will. And the first good news is about salvation following the fall of mankind. This is what verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. When we get to Genesis 12, we're going to unpack this a little bit more. But here's where God is prophesying the good news. Yes, there's judgment, but there's also salvation. There's also mercy. And then in verse 16, we looked at how God judged the woman both physically and emotionally in two of her closest relationships, in bearing children and in marriage. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you in childbirth and in her relationship with her spouse. And I mentioned that word desire is not a reference to sexual desires, but a desire to control the husband. Contrary to the original design of being a helper 
And how now the husband, instead of exercising loving servant type leadership, would tend to rule harshly over her as a result of the fall. And then in verses 17 through 19, we saw how God judged Adam in his primary sphere of calling, the workplace. The woman is affected in her primary sphere of joy, children and husband. The man is affected in his primary sphere there, workplace. Instead of work being a blessing, remember work existed before the fall. So work is not a result of the curse. Work has been made complicated as a result of the fall. Instead of work now being a blessing, it would be a toilsome and challenging experience. And then God pronounces the physical death. But when God said in Genesis 2, the day you, will, you eat of the fruit, you will die. There's two kinds of death there. One is the spiritual death. Separation from God, spiritual life gone, followed by physical death. And if a person dies spiritually, they face eternal death. So spiritually they died the very same day they ate of the fruit. And physically, death would follow. Verses 17 through 19 describe that. Paradise changed to pain and frustration all in one instant. People often ask, isn't God very cruel for punishing Adam and Eve for one small act of eating some fruit from the forbidden tree? I don't know if you've ever encountered that. I've done that in evangelism. People ask, just one, one thing. Why should God be so harsh. Such a question actually indicates a lack of understanding of the holy nature of God. You see, the God of the Bible is so holy that he cannot even look at sin. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that. How then can he fellowship with sinners? See, there was nothing evil in the forbidden tree itself. There was nothing evil in the fruit itself. Why? Because Genesis 1.31 says everything was very good. But the sanctity of the garden could only be kept through perfect obedience. Even one sin would break it. And that's exactly what happened. It was a test of obedience for Adam and Eve. Would they cherish God and his word and be content with God had provided for them or rebel against him by believing the lies of the devil and crave for more? There's a difference between freedom and independence. Adam and Eve had the freedom, but they were not independent creatures. They functioned now as independent creatures. I don't need God. Because once I become like God, why do I need Him? That was the lie Satan's soul, and they bought it. And as a result, everything fell apart. Tragically, they'll find out that God's word alone will triumph in the end over Satan's lies. But all was not lost. When God judged, mixed in that judgment was a message of hope. And remember, Adam was created in perfection. So brilliant mind. He immediately grasped that there is hope. And that is why in verse 21, we read about the very first act of human faith in the Bible. He does something remarkable. Verse 21, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. 
Adam believed God's word about Eve having childbirth. She would bear children and our Savior would come and crush Satan. And he gave evidence of that belief by naming her Eve. Eve means living. Living. That's a tremendous act of faith. And then in verse 21, Adam does that in verse 20. And in verse 21, we see the very first act of God's saving grace in shedding innocent blood, the blood of animals to clothe Adam and Eve to provide forgiveness for them. In that way, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In that way, God revealed two truths to them and to us. Number one, God will not accept our way of getting right with them. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They put together leaves. They covered themselves to hide their shame. God says, that's not the way you're going to be made right in my sight. I am the one who can clothe you. And this is how. This is the kind of clothing you need through the shedding of innocent blood. That's the first time there's death happening there. And death of an innocent substitute in the place of sinners. Second, by that act, God was showing that I myself will provide the perfect sacrifice for your sin. For your sin. The only one that I will accept, pointing again to that ultimate seed, the one who will crush Satan, the Messiah, Jesus himself. He will be the sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice for covering your sins. And the chapter ended with God sending both Adam and Eve out of the garden to prevent them from eating of the tree of life and living in a sin-affected, miserable body forever. God was going to recreate chapter ends the sad note. Sin caused them to lose their immediate and easy access to God's presence. Not to mention them losing their freedom from pain, disease, and death. And now we pick up the story from chapter 4. Now they would realize what, what's life in a fallen world. It would have been extremely hard for Adam and Eve to go through this because they tasted perfect life in a perfect world. You and I have never tasted that. We cannot even comprehend what life looks like because we're sinners. Sin has corrupted us, all parts of us. We're rebels. We come into this world that way. But Adam and Eve, they knew what it was to have everything and lose it all. Right at the beginning of the chapter, we see God in keeping with His promise enabling Adam and Eve to multiply. Verses 1 and the first part of verse 2 of chapter 4 tells us God gave them two boys, two boys to Eve, Cain and Abel. Look at verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Eve, thinking Cain is the one that's the promised seed. The footnote you will see there, NIV has it as, Cain actually thinks he is the man, the man who's going to crush Satan's head. How tragic it would have been to, for her to find out that he would in reality turn out to be a child of the devil, not the child of God. Some think Cain and Abel were twins born a few minutes apart. Based on that phrase, she became pregnant, governs both those, both those births. She became pregnant, gave birth to Cain. It doesn't again say she became pregnant. And the story continues that Abel was born a little later. Perhaps they were 
Hard to be sure though. We're not given details about Cain and Abel's early life. All we find out from the second part of verse 2 is as adults, the professions that they've chosen. Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. A shepherd and a farmer. Nothing wrong about the professions as such. And verses 3 through 5 describe the offerings they brought to God. The very fact that they were bringing offerings tell us that they knew it was part of honoring God. They did bring. So they knew they had to bring. They brought it. In the course of time, verse 3 says, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. The question that we need to ask and try to answer is this. Did Cain and Abel know what exactly to bring to God and only one of them did? We are not told the details specifically here. Hebrews 11 and verse 4 tells us this. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Yes, faith was essential in bringing an offering to God. A faith that Abel displayed as he brought the offering Cain did not display faith, number one. But also because of those words, if you notice in the second part of that, uh, it talks about a first part, a better offering than Cain. I slightly, it's my personal opinion, I slightly incline toward the conclusion that God required animal sacrifices and they were aware of it. Adam and Eve knew an animal sacrifice was needed to clothe them. They would have passed it on. That's how they knew offerings needed to be brought in the first place. But Cain did not do that. He didn't have faith and he didn't care about what he brought as long as he brought something. Cain was greatly upset that his offering was not accepted by God and his brothers was. So God now, notice, God reached out to Cain because he was aware what Cain was planning to do in his heart. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Remember last week I said that phrase, desires, is the same word used in Genesis 3. Sin's desire is to control you, but you must deal with it radically. With the fall, the marital relationships have also been affected. God is warning Cain. Cain, there is still time to do the right thing. He could still bring the right offerings. But he chose not to do that. Still has time to do what is right. And he could not refrain from letting his anger and jealousy toward his own brother completely control him. I said... A few weeks ago, I preached on the sinful anger and I talked about how jealousy and bitterness can lead even to murder. It's a danger of uncontrolled rage, boiling, seething inside. That's what's happening to Cain here. He goes to bed, thinks about that. He gets up, thinks about it. He cannot get away from that because inside he's eaten up. Verse 8 tells us while the brothers were in the field, 
Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. First murder in the Bible. Brother killing brother. How quickly sin moved from forbidden fruit, eating forbidden fruit, to taking a human life. Think about this. Genesis 1 and 2 is about life. But when sin comes, it's reversing the creative work of God that's described in Genesis 1 and 2. Imagine how excruciating it must have been for Adam and Eve. How many nights they would have spent regretting for listening to Satan's lies instead of believing God's truth, the God who always knows what is best for his creation. If you're dealing with any temptation, understand this. God's truth, God's truth prevails. God always knows what is best for his creation. Even if that means it is hard for us to do, it is the right thing to do. You will never regret in the long run obeying God's truth. Never regret that. Also as a side note, be warned what happens when we don't control our anger, jealousy, bitterness and resentment. We might not kill people outwardly, but if our hearts are controlled by these emotions, we'll be killing them a thousand times daily in our hearts. Remember Jesus said, being angry at someone in the heart makes us guilty enough to be thrown into hell. Matthew chapter 5 verse 22. Anger and hatred in the heart is equivalent to murder. After Cain killed Abel, again notice the kindness of God. God reaches out to Cain so he could acknowledge his sin. Same thing God did when Adam and Eve sinned. He's the one who's the seeker. God is always the seeker. Genesis 3, early part, when Adam and Eve sinned, God came seeking. Now when Cain murdered his brother, again God comes seeking so that he would acknowledge his sin. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? Notice his callous, arrogant response. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? No repentance, no sorrow for his sin, not even a shred of remorse. No wonder God pronounced a severe judgment on him. Look at verses 10 through 12. And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse. First time a human being is cursed. In Genesis 3, 17 through 19, it was the ground that was cursed. Satan was cursed earlier. The ground that was cursed. But now, first human being is cursed. Now you are under a curse. And driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. People who are immersed and who are enslaved to anger, bitterness, they are like restless wanderers in the heart. There is no peace. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God, says Isaiah. Cain was truly an ungodly man. That is why the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. He warns believers, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. He calls people, love one another. Love one another. But right at the start here in Genesis 4, we see the enmity between the godly and the ungodly. Abel, the godly, suffering at the hands of Cain, the ungodly, even though he was his own brother. The battle between Satan's seed 
and God's seed had started. Notice how Cain responds to God's judgment upon him. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Again, no sorrow, no repentance for a sinful act. He is only focusing on the consequences of his sin. My punishment is more than I can bear. Folks, that's one mark of false repentance. Worldly sorrow, as Paul described in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. False repentance is only sorry for the consequences of sin, not for the act of sin, like a thief who is only sorry because he is caught, not because he is sorry for stealing in the first place. True repentance is sorry for committing the sinful act itself. It will focus on the act, not so much on the punishment. In fact, where the Holy Spirit is really working, a repentant heart is, will say this, God my sin is greater than my punishment. You've been kind to me. You've been kind to me even in my sin. It will, it will say like Ezra says in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 13. Notice the repentant heart of a godly man. Ezra, as he's having this beautiful confession, Ezra 7, he's, this is corporate confession. He's confessing to Yahweh. You know, all this has happened to us because of our sins. In Ezra 7.13, he says, What happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet our God, notice here it comes, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Would you notice there though? Wrong verse. Okay. I gave a wrong reference. Uh, but this is what Ezra 7 one of those verses says, it's believed by faith. Uh, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. Yet our God, you have punished us. You have punished us less than our sins deserved. And have given us a remnant like this. Cain's sorrow was a worldly sorrow. All he focused on was, oh, the punishment is too much for me. Like a kid, you know, and punishes, oh, that's too harsh. You're not fair. Wicked heart always focus. The focus is on the consequence, not on the act itself. He didn't, even at this point, he does not feel bad. One bit for killing his brother. He only felt bad for his punishment. But again, notice the kindness of God in how he responds to a wicked man. Genesis 4 verses 15 through 16. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one, would, who, would found, no one who found him would kill him. <coughs> so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Even in this punishment, God shows kindness to Cain. And verses 70 through 24 describe the expansion of Cain's family, his sons, his grandsons, and his great-grandsons. You can read that up later when you go home. As you read those verses, you will find out how humanity was progressing in many ways. Musical instruments are now uh, coming into existence. The various tools are now being used. You will also notice how evil continued to spread, especially by Lamech, one of Cain's great-grandsons in verses 23 and 
24. But the, pause here for a moment. This would make the reader think, what about God's promise to Eve about a godly offspring? Abel is gone. Abel is gone. Does that mean God will not fulfill his promise? What about Satan's head being crushed? Is that not going to happen? Verses 25 through 26 tells us, God is faithful in keeping his word. He is not only faithful in judging people, but also in saving them. Look at verse 25. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to his son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel. She rules out Cain now, in the place of Abel, since Cain killed him. So the godly line was now going to be carried through Seth. And verse 26 says that Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And verse 26 ends with this beautiful, beautiful note. Uh, the second part of verse 26, at that time, people began to call or proclaim on the name of the Lord. Now you start seeing God is working his way through a godly seed. No mention of people calling on God until this time. In Genesis 4. Now you find the godly seed calling on the name of the Lord. Seth's descendants. And chapter 5 focuses more on the God of the Bible who not only judges but also saves. Just as God promised in Genesis 2 verses 16 through 17 that the day Adam and Eve would eat of the tree, they would die. Not only did they die spiritually, but physical death would come later on. Not just them, but all of mankind. All of mankind. Genesis 5 is one of those chapters. It's like a list of obituaries. List of obituaries. But also, you will find that this God is a God who saves you're going to see both those in this chapter. The chapter is a very selective list. It's a list of people from Adam on, but only traces the godly line who lived and died, except for one who was taken up while he was alive. Verses 1 through 3 talks about account of Adam's family line. Again, repeats Genesis 1, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them only to sexes. Nothing has changed. And he named them mankind uh, when they were created. And then verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. That's how other children came into existence. Uh, altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. And then the rest of the chapter traces through Seth's descendants as to how the Messiah would eventually come in terms of how long they lived and died. You will notice, as I will point out shortly, a repeated phrase, you're going to see that come through this whole chapter, and he died, and he died, and he died. That will keep on repeating. The author, Moses, has a particular emphasis why he's putting it that way, because he wants us to understand the contrast between Genesis 3, 4. Satan said, you will not certainly die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God said, you will surely die. Genesis 5 proves God's word will always prevail. For the sake of time, I'm only going to read those verses that pertain to their lifespan. Verse 5, altogether Adam lived a total of 930 years and then he died. Folks, let me just pause here for a moment. Here's another reason why we can take the days of creation in a literal sense. 
How so? Think with me for a moment. Adam was created on day six, right? Day six. Now, we are told day six is sometimes a million years or a billion years or a thousand years. If that's the case, how do we read this? He lived a total of 930 years. We take this at little face value, 930 years. If he was born on day six and day six was gazillion years, this doesn't make any sense. We cannot be inconsistent in our interpretation. Literal, historical, grammatical principles have to be employed. Plain reading of the text tells us Adam lived 930 years. If not, all the other age that you're going to see, you'll have to start speculating. Oh, in Adam's case, the 930 was not little 930, but when we come to verse 8, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. Now, the 912 is literal. See, you have to do exegetical gymnastics to keep up with the science of modern day. Verse 11, altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. Verse 14, altogether, Canaan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. Verse 17, altogether Mahalal lived a total of 895 years and then he died. Verse 20, altogether Jared lived a total of 962 years and then he died. But then notice what's said about Enoch, the son of Jared. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he had become the father of Methuselah, that's a key phrase there. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. Notice, Enoch's, Methuselah's birth had an effect on Enoch because verse 22 again says, after Enoch became the father of Methuselah, he walked faithfully with God. So Methuselah's birth was clearly a turning point in Enoch's life. What was that? What was that? Could it be that God revealed something to Enoch prior to the birth of Methuselah? Many believe so and I concur. That name Methuselah means, you can see in the footnote there, that's, that, that name Methuselah has the idea of man of the javelin or man of the sending forth. Think of a spear. You throw a spear to hurt someone. The idea is judgment. Judgment. You may ask, what was going to be sent out? The idea is, after Methuselah, God would send out his judgment against the world. And Genesis 6 follows judgment of the worldwide flood. When Methuselah died, God would send out his judgment. I believe the scriptures confirm this truth. Look with me closely. You need to put on a thinking hat. I know last night was a little long night with the Christmas worship, but you got to work with me here. Okay? Look at verses 25 through 29. See the beauty of God's word. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. So he was 187 years old, becomes the father of Lamech. After he had become the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years and then he died, the longest human being recorded in the Bible to have lived Methuselah. But then notice, connect verse 25 
When Methuselah lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. Look at verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord had cursed. So Genesis 5.25, Methuselah is 187 when Lamech was born. When Lamech was 182, Noah is born. So what does that make Methuselah's age to be at that time? 187 plus 182. That's 369 years old. When Noah was born, Methuselah is 369 years old. Okay. Take a quick peek at Genesis chapter 7 and verse 6. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 6. This is what it reads. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. Okay. Methuselah is 369 years when Noah is born. When Noah is 600 years, the flood came. 600 plus 369 is 969. Go back to verse 27. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years and then he died. Do you see the preciseness of scriptures here? See that? Methuselah was gone, judgment came. I take it literally. That's what happens. When you take the scriptures literally. I'm not saying scriptures don't have symbolic references. They do. But not in these areas. They're precise. They're precise. I believe Enoch took God at his word about this revelation and started his faithful walk before the Lord, believing that judgment was going to come. That is why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, talking about Enoch, says this, By faith Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Notice that phrase, one who pleased God. One who pleased God always refers to one who displays true faith, evidenced through acts of obedience to God's commands. He believed God's word by faith and he walked accordingly. He walked faithfully after I'm sure most of you are aware Enoch along with Elijah are the only two ones who did not experience physical death and then comes the link end of the chapter that links into the next chapter Noah look at verses 30 and 31 after Noah was born Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters altogether Lamech lived a total of 777 years and again that phrase and then he died and the chapter ends with Noah's three sons after Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then Genesis moved towards focusing on Shem's descendants through whom Abraham will come, and Isaac, Jacob, and Judah through whom Jesus would come. This chart that you're going to see there in a moment gives you the idea here from Genesis, the hall of Genesis. Notice that repeat when, when you put it on... Uh, Screen like that, you see that repeated phrase, then he died, then he died, then he died, then he died, then he died. There's this one pause, God took him away, again, then he died, then he died. Again, contrast that with Satan's lies, you will not surely die. And again, compare that with Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Folks, God's word always prevails over Satan's lies in every single instance. He is the father of lies. 
God is a God of truth. He cannot lie. Now if you were a Jew in the wilderness, as Moses is reading this out, or you're, 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 you're probably the, the parry was floating around, or you're hearing, whichever is the case, few things will come to your mind. If you're a Jew, remember we want to put ourselves in the wilderness when this was originally given. At least two things will come to your mind. Number one, God's word about sin and judgment always will be proved right. As they keep seeing this, and then he died, then he died, then he died. First thing that would have come to their mind, God's word about sin and judgment will always be proved right. Second, they would have also realized you cannot approach God in any manner you want. Cain is the father of all false religion. I'll invent ways on how I can approach you, God. You take what I give you. That's my worship. That's false religion. And the Jews would have understood that because, you know, even while they're going through the wilderness, as God is talking about the tabernacle, the kind of sacrifices they need to bring and who could slay the sacrifice, what kind of animals, they would have realized, this is the way for me to have my sins covered. And those who would not offer worship the way God would want them to worship, they were struck down. Judgment. So that would have made sense as they're entering into the promised land. They would be aware. This is how this holy God should be worshipped. Only those who approach God in the manner he has prescribed would be acceptable before him. All these lessons would have come to their mind as they were hearing Genesis 3, 4, and 5 being read. And for us, reading these three chapters several centuries later, huge implications. I'm going to name just two. Two implications of the many. The first one from Genesis 3 through 5 is this. The God of the Bible is a promise-keeping God. It's a promise-keeping God, specifically in two ways. He keeps his promises to save, and he keeps his promises to judge. Let's look at how he keeps his promises to save. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, God predicted through Eve's offspring, through Eve's seed, the Messiah would come, crush Satan's head. Years went by. People would have been thinking, when is this promised Messiah, this, this Savior, this Redeemer, this Satan crusher, when is he going to come? Has God forgotten his promise? How long, Lord? How long? was the cry Throughout the Old Testament we see. But God never forgot his promise. In his time, Galatians 4.4 4 tells us, in, at the appointed time, God sent forth Jesus in the line of Seth, who came through Eve to show us he can be trusted to keep all his promises. Let me illustrate this truth. Earlier, you see this, this chart here, descendants of Seth. The Gospel of Luke, when Luke is tracing Jesus' genealogy all the way to Adam, in verses 36 and 37, see the connection there. In Genesis 5, you see on the left side, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalal, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem. Luke puts it the other way. From Luke 3.37, move through from the bottom of the slide. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalal, Jared. He goes on and then he extends up to the point Jesus comes. So you see the connection from Seth's line as it extends through the Old Testament and it comes into the New. You find God keeping his promise to send the Savior and he did. 
and he did. There's your connection. God always keeps his promises. His promises to save all who come to him in the way he has commanded us to come to through his son. But also, God promises to judge those who rebel against him. We saw people starting from Adam dying. It's a proof that God will always keep his promise to judge sin. And the very fact death still occurs is proof positive that God will keep his promise to judge. And the only way to avoid that judgment, that ultimate judgment, the eternal death where the body and soul will both be cast into hell is to have our sins forgiven through that one means that God has appointed his son. Jesus' death is the only sacrifice that will cover all our sins. Any other way of trying to get right with God is useless. Just as God rejected Cain and his offering, he will reject all who come by their own ways of worship. Only one way. Jesus. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you've been in church all your life. That doesn't make you a Christian. If you've never been born again, convicted of your sin, repented, put your faith in Christ, that ultimate lamb sent by God for the payment of our sins, do it now. Do it now. Turn from your sinful ways. Satan's lies will not prevail. You cannot convince yourself you're on the right path when you're not on the right path. Allow God to clothe you in the righteousness that Jesus alone can provide as the covering of all your sins. Jesus alone can give you that right standing before the Father because Jesus alone took that full judgment for your sins so that all who would put their faith in him will never face that judgment for their sins. There is no other way to be right with God. Come to him. Come to Jesus. And those who by his grace have been enabled to come to him, we never have to fear death. This this judgment, then he died, then he died. We don't have to fear that. Look at what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus, by his death, having secured the forgiveness for our sins because he took all our judgment, sets us free from the fear of death and the judgment that follows it. He sets us free. We don't need to fear death. Believers alone can save with that holy confidence. Not arrogance, but holy confidence. Because Jesus took my judgment, I don't need to fear death. That famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody, after preaching his last sermon, he was so exhausted, he walked upstairs on his bed, he plopped. Next day, he couldn't even get up. Family gathered around him. And this is what Moody said. It's a famous statement. He said, one day, people read about my death in the newspaper. And when that happens, these were his words. He said, don't believe it because those born in the spirit would very much be alive with Christ in heaven and for eternity. At at, at that time as he was dying, you know, uh, Moody said loudly, earth recedes and heaven opens before me. He could sense God's call. His son, Will, who was by his father's bedside 
assumed his father was dreaming. So Moody says, no, no, no. This is not a dream, Will. It is beautiful. It is like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. Moody died a brief time later on December 26th, 1899. Folks, those who belong to Jesus, who are indwelt by the Spirit, born by the Spirit, can have the same confidence as Moody had as we face death. Obviously, we don't want to suffer. But death itself is the beginning for us. We're going to be in the presence of Jesus who took our judgment. That is why we don't need to fear death. And that is why we can stand firm for Jesus Christ. What can people do? The worst that they can do us is kill us. But that is not the best. Ushering us into the presence of Jesus. That is why believers don't need to fear death. Jesus, by his death, has broken the power of sin and the fear of death and judgment. Why do we fear death? Because God has put in our hearts eternity. Because after that, we have to have faced judgment. But Jesus took the judgment for us. So we can rest in that confidence and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. He keeps his promises to judge and to save. That's the first implication from Genesis 3 through 5. A second one is this. We cannot be casual about sin. Genesis 3, 4, 5 teaches us clearly we cannot be casual about sin. Even a small sin has major, major consequences. That's something we will see throughout Genesis, starting from these chapters. Just because we live under grace does not mean we can live any way we want. Oh, we're not under the law, we're under the grace. I get that. But you have to understand the law is a reflection of the holy character of God. Just because we don't live under the law in that sense doesn't mean God's holiness has ceased or he has changed his mind about sin. God is unchanging in his nature and in his purposes. He still hates sin. That is why his children cannot be casual about sin starting from their thought life. Starting from their thought life. We live in a time when sin is not taken seriously by professing Christians. When I come to church on Sundays, give me a message that encourages me. But a message that does not focus on sin. There is encouragement in the word of God, no question about it. But God sometimes has to cut before he can heal. Sometimes you have to have that surgery done in order for healing to come. Don't be deceived. Being a follower of Jesus does not mean we are free to do anything we want. It means we are freed from the power of sin and freed to live an obedient life. We're not independent creatures. Understand that. Free from the Old Testament law in that sense, but under the law of Christ. Authority of Christ. We've been given the power to live a holy life through the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us the strength and the power and the desire to pursue holiness. It does not matter how many around us are wicked. People like Abel, Seth, Enoch, they were the minority. Yet, they lived a holy life. Next time we'll see about Noah. It's one family, folks, in the whole world. Just one family. 
So when people say, I wish I had more Christians around me to live a holy life, don't fall into that thinking. You can be the shining light in the dark place God has kept you. Perhaps God has kept you in the dark place for a reason. Light always dispels darkness, no matter how small that light is. Remember that darkness cannot overcome light. The only way there will be darkness is when the light ceases to function as a light. You are the light of the world. You are the children of light. Shine brightly as you live among this crooked and perverse generation is what the New Testament tells us. While I'm on the subject of holiness, a word to men specifically as they talk about the dangers of sin. I mentioned last week, Genesis 3.9, when Adam and Eve sinned, even though Eve was the first one to disobey, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Why do you think that's the case? Simple. God places a huge responsibility on the men. Men are given the headship. doesn't matter what the culture says. Men are given the headship. Which means a greater responsibility. Older men, give yourselves completely to godliness. Give yourselves to systematic devouring of the word of God. Eat this book. Eat this book. This is our food. I've cherished your words, treasured your words more than my necessary food, said Job in the midst of his suffering. Give yourselves a diligent prayer to fellowship, to absolute purity. You're a husband, you're a father, you must be the spiritual leaders of the home. You, you, you cannot resign from that position. You cannot be lazy. You cannot do that. God will call you to account for your stewardship. Young men, start early. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 9, poses a question and answers that. He says, the question is, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? How? Men and women, how? He answers it right away, by living according to your word. Not according to your own imagination, not according to what you think is right, not according to what... The majority says it's right according to the word of the living God. Give yourself at a young age to consuming the word of God daily. That's your necessary food. Don't waste time in social media and other non-essential things. I'm not saying you should be against, you should be totally off. That's not my point here. My point is don't let that consume you because it corrupts your thinking and leads you away from God. Fill your mind with the truth of God. Be in a godly setting. Bad company always, always, always corrupts godly character. Be devoted to godliness. Be devoted to godliness. You cannot become a godly husband and a godly father if you're not godly while you're single. You cannot just flip the switch on on the day of your marriage. It doesn't happen. You don't get out of bed and stumble onto godliness. I wish it were true. It does not happen. It's a battle. Start now. Same principles applies to older women, younger women. Listen, it's never too early to start pursuing holiness. And it's never too old to quit the path of holiness either. You cannot sign off. I've lived Christian life all this many decades. I think I can tone down a little bit and take it easy and enjoy. Slippery slope. Slippery slope. We tend to enjoy the gifts 
so much that the giver becomes optional sometimes. Sad. Sad. You can see people moving away easily as they grow older. It's one of the sad tragedies of my life and many of you as well. It's amazing how subtly other things take precedence over God's word, prayer meetings, fellowship, church, everything. Sad. Jesus is coming back soon. And when he comes, he will put an end to all this sin, death, pain, and suffering. He'll put an end to death. We are living in the light of that. We should live with the holy confidence. Through Hosea, God says this. He promised his people in Hosea 13 verse 14. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Paul quotes this in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has fulfilled this. The power of the grave has been broken. The Puritan John Owen wrote a book centuries ago titled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. In other words, what he wanted to convey through that book is when Christ died, death died for all who put their faith in Jesus. If you're here as a child of God, you don't need to fear judgment. You can give your all for this Jesus who gave his life for you. And God's promise of a new universe is coming true. Revelation 21. I'm going to close with this. Verses 1 through 6. I told you last week, only four chapters in all of the Bible talk about a universe untouched by sin. 99.66% of the Bible describe the universe affected by sin. Only four unaffected. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22 of the 1,189 chapters in the Bible. This is what Revelation 21 reminds us. Yet to happen. We look forward to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, those of you who are hurting, pay attention. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. The presence of God on a permanent basis that was disrupted at the garden is restored now. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. What a beautiful picture. It's like Jesus putting his hand on your cheek, on my cheek, wiping away the tears. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Let me read verse 4 again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. What Satan came and destroyed in Genesis 3. Jesus restores beautifully. So you see the Jesus connection clearly. He will reverse it and he will bring this to pass. He's a God who can be trusted to keep all his promises. In the light of this, we can hold on to Jesus. We can persevere. Even if our ministry is not yielding much fruit, we can keep pressing on and on and on because we are doing it to please the one who died and rose again and who commands us to faithfully serve him in wherever he has placed us. 
all that sin has destroyed, Jesus will set right one day. Death will be defeated once for all one day when Jesus returns. That is why, that is why the Bible tells us, hold on to Jesus. That is why the Bible tells us, encourage one another and continue running this race, fixing our eyes, not on our problems, not on people, but fixing our eyes on Jesus who went ahead of us. Folks, let's not take sin lightly. We serve a holy God who hates sin. Keep your bodies pure. Keep your thought life pure. Keep your motives pure. Hate sin because God hates it. Let's pursue holiness without which Hebrews 12.14 says, No one can see the Lord. You're not the exception, I'm not the exception. Those of you far away from Jesus, one more time, please bear with me as I appeal to you again. Please turn from your sins. Turn to Jesus today. He is the only one who has defeated death because his tomb is the only tomb that is empty. By faith, surrender your life to Jesus. Meet him as your Savior and Lord and King now. Otherwise, you will only meet him as your judge. It will be too late to repent at that time. Too late. As he promised, he will judge you as he casts you into an eternal, conscious place of torment. The Bible describes that as a lake of fire, hell. Come to him today in repentance and faith. Lord, thank you for being a faithful God, a God who is faithful to keep his promises to judge, a God who is faithful to deny those who disown him also. Judge and save. Judge and save. Thank you for saving those in this room whose eyes you have opened. By your grace, all by your grace, we stand. Help us to continue standing. Help us to give our all to you. Why do we have to fear what comes our way, Lord? Because our eternity is secure, sealed by the blood of the Lamb. And for those who are still far away, may this day be the day they experience that loving call. Unless you call, life cannot happen, Lord. Like, just like you said, let there be light, and there was light. Father, may you shine the gospel light of the glory of your Son in those dark hearts that are present today. And may they be compelled to call to you, Jesus. Lord, save me, and you will save them. And they too can no longer live under the threat of death and live for you a life of obedience. And when they fail, just like we fail, come back to you, ask you to cleanse us and put us back on that narrow path. Thank you, Jesus, for reversing all the mess, all the mess that Genesis 3 started. We know one day we will be in your presence thanking you. Until then, Help us to stay faithful, proclaiming to these words that are found in your book, the unchanging word of the living God. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray.